0: Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon, And you're listening to Focus Interviews by Spectacles. Hey everyone,
1: Harry here. Thanks for listening as usual, but before we begin, I've got an important note. While we were having this discussion, the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas occurred. Since we weren't alerted to it until after we finished our conversation, we didn't have a chance to discuss it, despite the fact that the events are intricately connected to the theme of our discussion with Adam Gurry, which is law, constitutionality, and lawfulness. That said, Philip wrote about the relationship between gun violence and Adam's article on Friday, and you can find the link to that article in our show notes. As you listen to the episode, as we discuss law, violence, and the promises that states make to their citizens, I recommend that you keep the tragedy in Uvalde, as well as the tragedy in Buffalo, in mind, and what it would take to make sure that American citizens don't live in fear of unpredictable, horrific violence. On that note, here's the conversation. Today, we're excited to welcome Adam Gurry, the founder and editor-in-chief of Liberal Currents, an online publication focused on discussion of and defense of liberal principles. Adam recently wrote a piece for Liberal Currents called Lawful and Unconstitutional, Rule of Law in America Today, which will be the centerpiece of our discussion. The article is linked in the show notes, and you should check it out either before or after listening to the podcast. It's a great article, a deep but accessible dive into the question of just how lawful the modern U.S. is. We'll be covering the wide range of issues that the article touches on, including the relationship between constitutionality and lawfulness, the design of American political institutions, and the potential benefits and risks of rapid reforms to those institutions. We loved Adam's article, and we're very excited to have him on to talk about it. So stay tuned for all that and more from today's Focus with Adam Gurry from Spectacles. So uh, let's just jump in here. Uh, It's fortuitous that we're having uh, the conversation right now because I actually just received my first summons for jury duty so it's it's good timing um to talk about law but yeah let's 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 jump in here so Your article that we're discussing is called Lawful and Unconstitutional Rule of Law in America Today. Uh, For our listeners, if they haven't read it, um, there's a link in the description. But just to start us off, Adam, um, do you want to explain that title to us and give us a, a rundown of your perspective and argument? You don't need to go too deep. We'll dive into details later. But what's the difference between lawfulness and constitutionality as you see it? And why is highlighting that difference core to your perspective on rule of law in the U.S. today?
2: Well, the motivating example for me is the question of, could there be a Supreme Court case, a precedent that most law scholars would agree was just a complete misreading of the Constitution, yet uh, that after that precedent was set and the court system followed it consistently, uh, we could say it was still a pretty lawful behavior, the way that the court system was, was, was acting. Um, that was sort of the scenario I had in mind. Uh, the answer of course is no, the legal community would never agree on a single reading of the constitution anyway. So the, the, the example is contrived, but that was sort of, even if, even if I just had an example that I could point to and say, I think that they got it completely wrong and that it's very obviously wrong, but I still actually think the overall result was good. Um, uh, but not just good from a, my preferred policy perspective, but a rule of law perspective. Um, that that was sort of what I was wrestling with a little bit. Um, and uh, my uh, belief is that because written constitutions have come to dominate how liberal democracies are organized um, in the 20th century, because of the special role of the constitution in the U.S. in particular, we tend to think of law and rule of law um, as a concept, as being intricately tied to uh, the highest law, constitutional law, and f- following it faithfully. Uh, and so almost any anyone who actually uses or cares about the phrase rule of law in America thinks about it almost exclusively in terms of constitutionality. Mm-hmm. And the argument I wanted to make was constitutionality is by far the smallest aspect of uh, rule of law in in any country, but in America in particular.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean that makes sense. It is. It's. It's. Um, I know we think of that as being uh, it, the Constitution starts at the top. It's at the apex, right? And then everything else sort of we think of as flowing down from it. Um, and your argument locates it somewhat differently and, 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 and in a smaller position, perhaps.
0: Yeah. I'm just curious what you think about the relationship between not just law and constitutionality, but law and order. You know, it's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, especially uh, often on the right while being condemned or dismissed on the left. Um, But despite all that, I think the concept of order and its relationship to lawfulness is actually quite important. You know, I think of order defined in a kind of political sciencey way as being the degree of regularity or predictability in society. Now, that sounds similar to your definition of law, lawfulness, which, uh, if I recall correctly in your article, you, just, you define something along the lines of the government essentially keeping its promises in a reliable uh, way. So in that sense, law and order uh, make some sense to pair together. However, it seems that the American conception of order as it's often invoked in law and order is more something like discipline, not necessarily the predictability and regularity. So so so-called law and order often means things like arbitrary police power, civil asset forfeiture, and other things like that. And in that sense, I think order is a little bit like constitutional, in that it's invoked as if it's analogous to lawfulness, but it isn't really. So how would you relate order, lawfulness, and constitutionality? And why do you think it might be that Americans seem particularly eager to avoid confronting the concept of lawfulness head-on and instead tend to defer to notions of constitutionality or order?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... It's a, it's a great, just a great like topic. And, and in my essay, which was long enough as it is, (laughs) I, I, I felt, I felt uh, that I very, I I purposefully simplified what I thought rule of law was. I tried to boil it down to this idea of kind of like different kinds of promise keeping, which to Mm -hmm. me is more like a good first approximation in order to illustrate the point that it's not really about what's written on the on the t- on the the papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not about words on paper. It's about the practices. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's obviously a lot larger than that. Uh, and it, it is tied to order. And the, the example, so I, I didn't mention the, the title, I think, of the book. But uh, one of the examples I used was this Shasta County uh, cattle yeah, yeah. ranching, um, where because of a combination of how crazy complicated the law is, and how weirdly checkered it is jurisdictionally. Um, almost no one there actually knew. Like some people, the actual ranchers were pretty good at knowing which jurisdiction they were under for the different liability law, but didn't understand how it actually worked. Mm-hmm. The actual people charged with understanding, enforcing, or ensuring against the law did not understand the law as written. Um, but still, it was a, it was a very orderly place. Um mm-hmm. and uh, Elikson's book is actually titled "Order Without Law." Mm. Um, so he's drawing that contrast himself, um, which I think it's I think they are two distinct concepts, and you can treat them distinctly, but mm-hmm. but it's the boundary is very hazy. Um, so mm-hmm. and I think what you're what you're getting at is sort of gets at that. So, um, Samuel Goldman, one of the more interesting uh, conservative writers today yeah. wrote something about how Americans should stop comparing their uh, our country to yes. Europe. Uh, we should we should look at more continentally. We're we're more like the Americas. Um, if you right. look at our levels of violence, for example, private violence um, and things like that. Um, so there's a there's a disorderliness to American culture. Mm-hmm. That there, there always has been. Uh, I don't think it's unique. I think some countries used to be similarly disordered. I mean, it's not like Europe was a peaceful place in the 19th <laughs> century. Um, uh, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, right now, our, our orderliness is more like uh, Mexico's or, or maybe not Mexico, but, you know, Latin America as a whole of the average um, than the European average um, mm-hmm. Or at least the Western European average, uh, and so what does that mean, though? When when I look at uh, at uh, areas where police brutality is the worst problem, um, what, what I what I see is sort of a two sided problem. Um, that as a criminal, as someone who believes very strongly in criminal justice reform, I'm I'm tempted to pin on one side. The enforcement side, but I do think it's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I think that uh, law enforcement works when relationships of trust have been created between the enforcing community and the enforcers mm-hmm. to some degree, um, and the breakdown of trust uh, results both in higher crime, like just just people with impunity committing crimes, violent or otherwise against other members of the community. Um, but also with police overreach. Um, and then it sort of is a vicious cycle where the, re- the overreach feeds the the trust further yeah. um, attempts to hold the police accountable, um, demoralize the police so that they, then they just sort of uh, vacate the role a, a lot of the times entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of spins out of control. Um, so, Lawfulness and orderliness, I think they they feed on each other. Of course, the actual law and order conservatives that you're referring to um, are more often contributors to the problem right. uh, than right. than solving. You know, the I, if we were, if we were to distinguish the two, um, orderliness would be something like the law. It, it would be more like the law abidingness of the citizens, mm-hmm. whereas, mm-hmm. R- whereas rule of law is more about the lawfulness of the institutions. Mm. Right. Um, that's probably a useful way to distinguish mm-hmm. them. And the way that they relate is that the more disorderly the public, the more likely, uh, the institutions are to throw off their restraints, um, mm. and, and behave less lawfully. Mm. Um, and there's not necessarily a direct, like one, there's, there's not there's not necessarily an obvious first cause. Um, And historically you can point to cases where what, what triggered the beginning of a spiral was either side of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think it's, it's a, it's a complicated area and it's easy to put it into sort of culture war terms if you wanted to pin it on either side. But I think it's sort of an interrelated thing where there's, there's, there's the, law abidingness of the citizens and then there's the lawfulness of the institutions Yeah, and the, they, they influence each other, but actually you can get combinations of, of the two that are not intuitive to a theorist. Um, and this is where people will point to completely author- authoritarian systems that are actually orderly um, mm-hmm. or, or very yeah. democratic systems um, th- that with free and fair elections and things um, that are very lawful but very disorderly,
0: yeah.
2: um, uh, and th- those two those two extremes are obviously analytically possible and is also empirically occur.
0: Yeah, well, I think yeah. that I'm.
2: I, I, ahead, saying, I
0: think that raises another interesting question. Um, you especially you talking about the sort of the two sides to some of these problems. You might see issues in our in the lawfulness of our institutions. But you might see that these are also related to issues in the law abidingness of our communities, right? And it's sort of two sided and it's hard to tell where it starts and where it ends and how to halt it. And I think the interesting question that raises is um, one about reform. And I think one of the things I really liked about the article is that you talk about some of the flaws of our different institutions and, uh, particularly you blame, you put some blame for our problems at the feet of our legislature for being, um, let's say, uh, I don't know, lazy, uh, delinquent, um, <laughs> not very active. Uh, we'll put it that way which seems to suggest that maybe we should have a a legislature and this is something we've talked about at spectacles a lot a legislature which is more interested in say competing with the supreme court um however you have a you have a chilling story in your article about the house on american activities committee when the court tried to curb anti-communism efforts congress Uh, Proposed to strip the court of its jurisdiction in the relevant areas. And as a concession, the court bowed to Congress and allowed HUAC to run amok. Now, I thought that was an interesting and worrisome story. And it. it, I agree. I agree. (laughs) And it it reinforces this important question about reform that you sort of indicate with your discussion of, of criminal justice, which is that in the case of Congress, Uh, Could more activity simply translate to a sort of tyranny and uh, could any single institutional reform, whether that's anti-gerrymandering, reigning in the courts, whatever it is that's meant to make the country more lawful, uh, simply be weaponized or overturned? Is reform really a solution or is there some sort of deeper rot elsewhere which is bound to prevent the workability of any institutional remedy?
2: I, I have another another essay that's more about what I think is the, the fruitful, like, reform project uh-huh. as an overall institutional thing, and it more it looks to countries like Canada or Germany or Australia that are also uh, federalist, mm-hmm. but and and also but also kind of what we think of as classical, you know, big welfare state. Um, well, you know, good like but but like orderly like basically you could you they the 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 actual the the place of those countries especially like canada in american debates is usually the left saying we should be more like them in like healthcare, Mm -hmm. and the and the right saying no we want more uh you know free market solutions and we want to be more federalist um but at least on that latter one the the Healthcare services are provided by the federal units in Canada. It's just mm. that the the federal government helps make sure that the per person budgets that these federal units have um, is a lot more uh, progressive in how it's distributed. Basically, it's it's equalized across how poor the people are per per federal unit. Um, uh, and then you know they place some they place some standards on them as, 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 that they're supposed to meet and things, but right. mostly it's hands off and, and administered by the provinces. Um, so long, long story short. In in that I look at, especially since state constitutions are much more flexible and easier to update or, or outright replace uh, than the federal one. Um, just sort of how far we could go with a an a state by state uh, reform approach. Um, but of course, the problem is that with everything, like you're saying, it's, it's a lot of things tied together. So, uh, you, know, you know, in economics, they, they talk about the problem of the second best, where uh, the next, the next best, if if you if you have a policy regime that is the worst possible regime, mm-hmm. a reform that makes it logically further in the direction of the most desirable outcome might actually be worse. Than um, mm. than uh, mm. just uh, working within the logic of of what you already have um, right. th- in some way. Um, so there's th- th- there, I mean, and that th- that's an econ thing. There's there's a lot of uh, sort of like complexity theory that uh, that that and you know dealing with nonlinear systems that that backs up that logic where there's essentially a lot of middle grounds between peaks that are worse. Than, right. than even even you know the lowest peaks um but, but point, the point is that what makes this hard is that in, in my mind to get a better dynamic um overall um would probably take se- several large r- changes mm-hmm. that would be hard to get any one of, of them um right? right um now for things like policing i do have um ideas um and in fact, I think there's a lot of things that could be improved in their administration, like in the executive element mm. um, uh, at the state level, simply by moving things to the state level mm. rather than to the local control that they've historically had. And police right. is is one of them. Um, I think this probably would make me unpopular with like the defund uh, police, the police folks, or or abolitionists who's general criticisms I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to and whose problems I agree. Like the things they see as problems are things I agree are problems. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy to mm-hmm. them, but I think I, I think uh, they're usually lacking in, in solutions. Um, yep. And from my point of view, a large state level prof- like high professional standards uh, police system um, would at least get rid of a lot of the worst uh, examples of, of police precincts that we have now. Um, like mm-hmm. that, would, that would be one path towards, and it would also be a path where you're saying you could potentially politically uh, get the police to buy into because you're in theory bringing bigger state budgets into the system versus, uh, the, you know, local ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you're providing a state level career system for them to move up in rather than just a, little, a bunch of little specific localities. Um, so those, those are things where I think there's room right. to, to improve things. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I don't think there's any silver bullet. And I think the problem is that everything, is, both the actual political, the politics of reform um, that you would be working within um, of any given moment and uh, the dynamics that, that unfold for what you actually get are it's, it's so, I mean, there's, there's never, there's, there's nothing that I could suggest that I would say implement this and you're, you're definitely guaranteed or, or 50%, right. you know, there's a 50% chance you'll get uh or better chance that you'll get a much better overall. Um, and this is the kind of, this is the kind of observation that pushes one towards a little bit of small C conservatism, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the, the situation with the Supreme court, uh, right now grows increasingly untenable. Um, Yeah. But then again, there were people who felt that way at several stages of the Supreme Court's history and that it just, it stuck around. I mean, incidents like the one I described um, or the, or, you know, the, the new deals uh, confrontation with the court occurred. Um, Nothing was changed, but the, but much like Nixon resigning, um, you know the fact that we've never removed a president. We had one who resigned because he knew he was going to be removed. Um, right. We've had the court. We've had the court um, change its behavior um, in order to preempt um, reform before. Right. So it's it's not like it's totally unconstrained, even if it can appear that way. Um, But yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It makes me think um, to your point about um, second-best regimes and stuff like that. That, like, you know, in a perfect world, like I think Germany has like the gold institutional standard for how it's, you know, its legislature, executive, and I think as well, you make a convincing case for its judiciary as well. Um, But if we tried to all of a sudden implant German institutions with a mixed-member proportional representation and 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 a and a federal system that works far more fluidly than ours does um you would you could probably cause all kinds of chaos and all kinds of perverse incentives that have to do with yeah. our own institutional um history and traditions so obviously right like even though we maybe can get a sense of what works best under you know these conditions and why does it work well we can't guarantee that it's going to work under yeah the, i mean and and
2: you know i i do i i do sometimes look at the german case in particular and and uh and and wish we could graph some <laughs> things from it, but yeah. but it's always it's always important to remember, like because when you look at things from just kind of a theory point of view, even even like looking at empirically at the systems in the world that exist and think like come up with your theoretical reasons for why some are better than others, um, it's always good to remember uh, how exactly they got that hit that system. Yes, <laughs> yes,
1: right, right, yeah, and thinking um,
2: like. You know, that price is not worth paying.
1: <laughs> not at all. Right. No, that's a very good point. Yeah. And, and, and it's, and I, I mean, and that also, I mean, as well, just goes to your point about like, you can't just put the legal text, right? right. These particular institutional arrangements in place and then have, because those are not the core of what creates, you know, lawfulness and orderliness in society. Um, but I wanted to move on to, um, a question that I think goes a, a bit afield, um, of what your article touches on, um. But I think it seems fairly uh, fundamental to our discussion of, of lawfulness, um, and that's the relationship between violence, law, and order. And I know I asked you before we started chatting today if it was okay if we talked about um, this article, Violence in the Word, by the legal theorist Robert Cover, and you said, yes, so I'm going to ask my question about it. Um, and he wrote in this piece just and, one and, and listener,
0: if you have no idea who Robert Cover is, or you haven't read this, or you haven't heard of it, don't worry. Uh, it's yes. going to be okay. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'll explain. But he, in, in his piece, he, he writes one line, which which has always stuck with me, is, and it was one of my favorite pieces that I read when I was a, in college in political science. He writes, a legal world is built only to the extent that there are commitments that place bodies on the line. His general point um, is that violence is in some ways central to lawfulness, um, even though it can, of course, be play a huge role in lawlessness as well, but that violence is a necessary tool the to state has to possess and, and use to fulfill the promises uh, that you discuss. Um, and I think that's actually something that a lot of good liberals, such as myself, tend to forget or just never even think about, right? I think liberals frequently are partial to these ideas of consensus building and compromise. You know, you can get everyone in a room... Sit down and hammer out a set of rules, a legal text that's mutually agreeable to all parties. Um, So I'm kind of curious what you think of this, right? Are are liberals too ready to ignore or just not think about, um, as you write in your piece, the wrestling of specific actors with specific social problems and the institutionalization of specific approaches for solving those problems?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't think this is a special problem of liberals. I think this is just a problem in general, which is that the level of commentary. know that 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 is going to attract audiences is going to be at a a level of abstraction um that you know it'll it'll either be purely focusing on violence in a way Mm -hmm. that's that's not very elucidating about what's going on Mm -hmm. um uh you know like i mean i I live in brooklyn i live maybe a mile away from where there was a that mass shooter a few weeks ago um i mean that was a horrifying thing um Stories like that, obviously, people focus on, um, but actually understanding why more of those occur at a, at a particular time or or less, that's that's hard to do. And just and just reading the news and commentary about it is not going to get you there. Then and then on the other on the other hand, you read uh, sort of political horse race reporting or policy want coverage, you know, people proposing. So I, I got this is maybe a good example. Uh, uh, do you know Sam Hammond at his cannon? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he and I had this, this debate several years ago, uh, when New York city was increasing their, their cigarette tax. I think he's a big proponent of that for public health reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and my argument was, well, you know, you have to think about, um, what was his name? Eric, uh, the, the Eric the Garner, ma- Eric Garner. You have to think of the Eric Garner's who was literally selling, um, you know, essentially Ill- illegal, uh, right. cigarettes, uh, in order to avoid the tax. Um, and my point was the enforcement of this creates more individuals like that. Um, and my, right. I, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not a legal, Again, this is where a, a cover-like perspective, though I don't think he falls into this, but like a you know the prohi- the more of the prohibitionist um, type uh, perspective in this space will take an argument like that to say that we sh- we sh- then therefore we should never do it. Um, my point is simply that you have to actually confront that you have to actually mm-hmm. do that. And he 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 was very un- uncomfortable. Not I wouldn't say uncomfortable. He he thought that it was. I think he he believed I was pulling the prohibitionist move and saying it was that, that doing this was out of bounds because of the, because of this, the violent aspect. Right. But mm-hmm. really my perspective is just, you, sh- you shouldn't sweep it under the rug um, uh, when in the discussions it should, it, it should be part of the conversation. Um, and it rarely is. Usually it's more like on the one hand, critics of it will talk about rights um, and, and freedoms and uh, you know, sort of at an abstract level. And mm-hmm. On the other hand, proponents of it will talk about sort of public health and harms reduction and, and things like that, and how it's right. it's sort of from a utilitarian perspective better than outright banning, um, and maybe even balances people's rights with uh, with public health by they can still do it; they just have to pay more, you know, stuff like that. It'll it, and and all those conversations are fine. There's nothing wrong with them. It's just mm-hmm. that it it does gloss over this this basic cover point of uh, there's the threat of violence under right. this. Um, mm-hmm. And often no, no one thinks when they're raising the, the, the tax uh, on tobacco that it's going to get someone killed. In fact, they're thinking they're trying to avoid the opposite. Um, right. But policemen are human beings who are exercising power and have pretty wide discretion on, on the spot. Um, and they could they can pull what happened with Eric Garner. I mean they could it was a totally unnecessary situation.
1: Right. Um, right. It makes me uh, makes me think of uh, what the you're recounting of um, what Mohammed Bazizi was subjected to that you discuss in your piece, right? That he lived in this world where he was governed by this weird web of regulations at the local the level of his you know, what he what his practice was and also living in a totalitarian regime. Um, but that also struck me. Um, because um, Cover talks about um, martyrs and people who, you know, commit these acts um, in resistance to a, a, a series of, of, of when they, you know, get to a point where they think this system is so unjust that I'm going to, you know, commit an act of martyrdom. And that is sort of what Mohammed Wazizi did. You don't mention it in in, in your article, but that he set off the, the Arab Spring in, in his action. And so I, I thought of that, um, the, the connection between that sort of that violence that takes place, the sort of, I covert talks about it. it's like world destroying violence um and what and, and and the you know the power of the state and, and i thought that was very interesting i like that connection
2: yeah no i mean so i maybe three or four years ago i started getting interested in legal realism mm-hmm. as, a, as a school though i have to say my conclusion is that it was never actually a school it was a oh, it was sort of a moment in time in american jurisprudence Um, where a bunch of of a bundle of different things were variously influential, like using social science, um, but also being a little skeptical about uh, formalism um, Hmm. and like a a few things like that. Um, But one of the things I wondered is at the time is if you could take covert like arguments seriously and still believe in rule of law at all. Yeah. Um, And, uh, and, I, I had trouble because if you, if you zoom in on any institution, like if, if you look at it with sufficient granularity, which we can now because of, of how, tr- how easy it is to record things um, and, and disseminate them to a broad public. Um, if you zoom in on any institution, it's a complete mess. It doesn't look orderly, no matter no, even the most orderly institution in yeah. the world looks completely arbitrary at the mm-hmm. level of case by case. Um,
0: right.
2: Uh, especially if you're looking at it case by case, one after the other. Um, uh, so I had trouble sort of, saying well okay but then what is anything really orderly or, or or lawful and what helped me was not really reading like uh you know F- fuller's morality of the law or or hayek on rule of law or, or these people who classically uh try and formalize what rule of law is but actually thinking about this this economist hernando de soto who folk who, who did i was i was happy to see he had done the work in the bozizi case who i was writing about for other reasons um uh who writes about these markets where the regulations are opaque and expensive and the, the legality of things is, is not just, it's not just that certain activities are illegal that get conducted anyway. It's that there's a huge amount of ambiguity about what is legal. Um, and thinking about that as sort of a baseline setting for, for lawlessness of the behavior of the state. Um, so you, on the one hand, a relatively strong state um, that is arbitrary um, and, uh, and, and, ambiguous in that way. On the other mm. hand, um, sort of failed state situations where formal law is, is very tenuous and existing at all. Um, right. so the, using those as sort of extreme benchlines, you could say, okay, in America, you can incorporate a business. You can, you can, maybe we don't like the licensure regime in particular professions, but if you get a doctor's license, a medical license you can practice medicine no one's going to throw you in jail for practicing medicine or, or come and shake you down and, and say that you, you'll get in trouble they'll throw you in jail if you mm-hmm. don't pay them off you know that 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 doesn't that that's not really like we're way better than that
1: right
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> um and that way we're closer to europe than we are too many parts of Latin America. right right um, yeah uh, yeah but but there are other aspects of our system that are very unlawful um i think i i mentioned uh, the border protection and, uh, yes. and ice. Um, my, in my, in my understanding, criticism of them is very merited. They have the largest budgets of any federal agencies, uh, individually, like they're number one and number two. So combined immigration enforcement, um, just absolutely any, any abuse you think of the FBI doing or, uh, ATF, Um, It's just a joke. They're they're tiny, infinitesimally small compared to the size of the immigration enforcement agencies. Uh And their their Mm -hmm. mandates are extremely broad. Uh Um, The oversight is fairly minimal. Um, It's it's very common for them to deport people who are citizens just because they deported people first um, and asked questions later. Uh, the, The immigration courts themselves are part of the DOJ. They're not actually part of the the judicial branch. Like there's just a lot about it. That's just very clearly lawless. And it makes sense, right? Because it's dealing with people that we've decided are not citizens and therefore don't have the same legal rights as everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we just, but, but of course, as, as anyone would tell you, and as they said about as, as the abolitionists said of slavery, when it existed, uh, the things that are put in place to regulate the people that aren't citizens, don't just end up it's not like the citizens yeah. never get touched yeah. you know? right um yeah and 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 having these huge armed forces um that ha, are given a great free hand uh is is not going to have implications just for people that we correctly or incorrectly conclude are not citizens Right.
1: Yeah. No. I think that that makes me uh, brings me to a question that I that I wanted to ask. I yeah. think it might be our last question. But um, you talk about, uh, for example, with CBP and the um, asylum judges who are actually operating under DOJ. I'm sure you were paying attention and read because you mentioned you mentioned non-delegation um, briefly in your piece, and I'm sure you read something about the uh, Fifth Circuit Court ruling on the SEC uh, that has to do with administrative law justices. And so I'll start by saying for, for listeners, I mean, you know, Congress has this power to establish federal agencies and departments and delegate some of its kind of some of its legislative authority to these agencies to make rules and regulations and even to employ uh, judges, uh, sort of kind of judges um, within those agencies. And I'm not an expert at all here, so I'm just going off of what little I know. Um, but there's also not really anything in the Constitution that directly says it can exist uh, or that these agencies can exist and that they can have this power, even though the majority, I think, of legal interpreters would probably say that they do have that power. Um, and so right now, if you see this this case with the SEC, which is different than CBP, right, it's not exercising, right, sort of a direct violence against um, non-citizen populations, but the court has one court has constrained the power of the SEC to um, execute its its duties that Congress has given it on the basis that the duties are too vague, that the b- person in question have a right to a trial by, by jury, et cetera, et cetera, this is less important. Uh, but I think in, in realistic terms, right, the administrative state um, insofar as it applies to the general welfare endowed with power, delegated by Congress to interpret um, statutes within reasonable parameters and draw up rules and regulations actually helps the government Um, meet the basic commitments, the promises you discussed that it has to us as citizens, right? Prosecutes fraud, ensures we have universal weights and measures, so on. and you do note, right, that something as radical as 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 uh, the elimination of Congress's ability to delegate power could be seen as, you know, maybe we could see that as unlawful or somehow lawless because it's such a rapid change um, in the way that we live our lives and the way the government operates. But you also talk about how uh, with CBP and, and things like that, the, the executive branch is in many ways the least lawful branch, right? You, you have these sort of judge, jury, and executioner setups within federal agencies that are not, right? Subject to the separation of powers in the same way, it seems to me as, as, a, as a sort of amateur observer. I think that if the average American were informed about some of the reasons the Fifth Circuit um, just overruled the SEC, they might think that it was lawless too, it, at, at least on a first reading. So I'm curious how we reconcile this problem in which on the one hand, we require an administrative state to maintain basic lawfulness and ensure the general welfare, but it's also operating with very little oversight from Congress or the courts. And when you get something like CBP and how they behave on the border, that can be very scary. So how do we reconcile those those sorts of things?
2: Yeah. So one of the things that has really impacted my thinking a lot um, is Joseph Heath's book, The Machinery of Government, which is about the administrative state. Mm -hmm. And he has a three-branch view of, of government, but it's different because it's Canadian. It's so there's no, there's no president. Um, (laughs) and basically in his, his view, the executive branch just is the administrative state, the non-elected, um, and the legislative power is the elected branch.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, and, uh, he has sort of a parliamentary supremacy point of view where the, Legislature has formal supremacy over the system. Mm -hmm. The administrative body actually does the business of government and -hmm. therefore ends up actually filling in a lot of the actual details and developing the technical knowledge and coming up with regulations, um, uh, you know, administrative law that's, that's subordinate to statutory law the same way that statutory law is subordinate to constitutional law. Um, Mm. But Um, but, but most of the actual law and operation and how people interact with the government ends up coming through that. Um, so in his, in his scheme, um, the elected branch is responsive to people's needs and interests. Um, not only does it set budgets and things and have other tools for, for, for stepping in when there's when there's overreach on the executive side, but they do what, most people who talk about legislatures um, sort of under eight, I think they do constituency services, which mm. they're actually sort of your person at the hall of power who can help guide you through what Heath himself calls the like Kafka-esque uh, scenarios you can find yourself in with any administrative body. Right. Um, uh, so the, you know, the executive branch does the business of government, the, the elected branch is responsive to people's interests and 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 needs and and the way that and also the way that the government can sometimes uh, trample on those. Um, and so you've got your your sort of people in your corner. Um, but then the judicial branch, in his telling, when it does its best, it, it doesn't have the subject matter expertise uh, that the administrators do. So its role is chiefly to um, push administration administrative bodies to develop. Uh, rule of law type norms internally and hold mm. them to, and hold them to that.
1: Interesting.
2: Um, he, he doesn't talk about the, the relationship of of the judicial to the legislative. I think probably for someone in a small, you know, unwritten constitutional system, that's less interesting to him. Um, mm-hmm. For me, I think, I mean, the Fifth Circuit uh, opinion. Is, is I think it it's on it's high on crack but yes um, yes in it's particular <laughs> but but I think the general idea of judges um, st- essentially nullifying statutory law because it is poorly written um, imprecise you know vague whatever it is I, I think holding them to some standard of actual clarity is is not a, a bad thing mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think using that, to uh to try and sandbag a lot of the small c constitution as it exists now is not necessarily fruitful i think in a healthy system the judicial branch is holding both sort of a a norm of lawfulness to both of the other branches and that's its main role um uh but that's you know that's an ideal world
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um well, I think that wraps about that just about wraps up the questions um, that I have, and I think Philip is yeah, well, based on. Yeah. I don't our think notes. I have um, uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to us. For our listeners, this was Adam Gurry. Uh He is the founder and editor in chief of Liberal Currents, which is a magazine devoted to very similar subject material to what Spectacles talks about. He recently wrote this article, and very glad to have him on. So, thank you so much for joining us, Adam.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Hey, we need your help and it'll only take 10 seconds. Our dream is to build a home for the stories that matter for democracy. But to keep that dream alive, we need to grow this community. So if you've been enjoying spectacles or you learned something from this episode, please consider sharing it. It's super easy. All you need to do is click one of the links in the show notes to share this episode via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or email. Thanks for your help and thanks for listening.